Well, you'll notice on that picture of the youth that I was not there. Um, even though I, I serve on the youth team, I can't stand amusement parks. Um, and I can't stand hot weather. And so I opted out uh, of that one. So I am, I am equally thankful for those adults who volunteered to do that so I don't have to be there because um, I would have ruined everybody's time um, very easily. Um, I do have the privilege, though, of, of serving our youth um, over the last half a year or so, and it's been, uh, it's been fun. I've gotten to know some of our students, and one of the things that we've been doing is on Wednesday nights, we gather at McKnight Park and we just play some games because, you know, they've been on their screens, or we've all been on their screens all day, and it's just good to get outside. The weather's been almost perfect every Wednesday night, a couple hot ones, but we suffer through that, and we just play goofy games. It's really an excuse for me to make, like, 15-year-olds do crazy things um, with hula hoops or whatever. One of the games that we played a few weeks ago, um, I, I, just, I spend time you know, just finding something on the internet to play. One of the games we played was this uh, rock, paper, scissors variation. You guys all know rock, paper, scissors, shoot. And the, the goal of this game, there was two teams. There was the, the boys on one side and the girls on one side. And then there was a series of like hula hoops or cones that you had to hop, kind of like bunny hop towards the other team, one person at a time. And if you got to a certain level, then your team gets one point. But if you hit, you know, if you got, there's only one line, so if two players from the opposing teams ran, you know, into each other, they had to play a quick game of rock, paper, scissors. The winner advances and can keep hopping towards the other side while a new player comes on, and the loser has to go back to the back of the line on his or her side. And uh, I, I thought it was a great game. Um, students, you can argue with me of whether you enjoyed that one. We usually have quite a few arguments, and we have banned the word unfair from Wednesday nights because I was sick of hearing that. One of my favorite things about this game, though, is on Wednesday nights, we have everybody from incoming sixth graders to outgoing 12th graders in this group. So if you think your job is hard, try finding some games that will cover that span. But this one worked, and the greatest thing The greatest piece was when you had a giant 12th grade boy coming down, hopping like a bunny, full speed, cone to cone to cone, and then you had kind of these tiny 6th graders coming the other way. So here comes Brady Schmidt, and here comes a little 6th grader, and that 6th grader is just like ducking and hiding, but they get together, and then they've got to play rock, paper, scissors. It's this beautiful thing. So thankfully, it's not like a wrestling match or anything. Um, but they get together, they play rock, paper, scissors, and no offense to the high schoolers, I'm kind of rooting for those sixth graders on that one, right? Because it's awesome to see, like, Micaiah just, like, take out Brady. <laughs> and, like, and Brady has to sulk and go back to the end of the line. Josh Anderson, who played, he's, he's getting out by sixth graders, and then these, these sixth graders continue on, and I don't remember. I think the girls won on that one. Did No? no? Yes. <laughs> one of our other rules is we don't argue, and um, that one has not been enforced. But all of that to say, all of that to say, if you have a teenager, come on down Wednesday nights. We have a good time. Secondly, there's something about an underdog that we love to cheer for, Right? We just love it when David takes down Goliath. And that's kind of what happened on those Wednesday nights. You know, you just see that upset of like, whoa, that wouldn't happen if this was, you know, two opposing football teams coming together or something like that. But here's the underdog who triumphs and the one who had all that power coming through has to walk back in shame with his head (laughs) hung low. 
We're going to get to a story, a couple stories in Mark today that's going to put us into that rooting category. We're looking at two different parties and who's greater? Mark does this over and over and over throughout the gospel of Mark. He puts together two different individuals or a group of people and another group of people and he just kind of lets the reader or the listener say, who's who's better off here? Who's doing the right thing? If you read through the gospel of Mark and do it repeatedly, you'll find that scenario over and over again. Jesus sets it up quite often. Mark writes about it quite often. The disciples kind of back into those situations sometime. But that's what happens throughout the book of Mark. And we're going to get to that in just a second. But before we get there, there's another section of Mark that we're going to tackle. And it's a, it's a doozy. Mark is a great storyteller. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed Sunday mornings, either the few times that I've been able to preach or studying with, with Nate preaching or others. It's just been a, a delight to be in the Gospel of Mark, and I'm, I'm almost a little sad as we start to approach the end of Mark, which is interesting because you're supposed to, the tone of Mark has changed, and no longer is it this triumphant tone. It's kind of this dark tone as Jesus heads to Jerusalem. Mark, throughout his gospel, threads these little things that keep the story moving. It might be a repeated word or a character, a title of Jesus, a, a similar miracle that reminds us of another miracle, or a teaching that sounds similar to another teaching. But as we get into chapter 12, and we're going to conclude chapter 12 today, we've moved into a new section of Mark. Jesus has revealed his glorious divinity to crowds of people through miracles, to Peter, James, and John at the Mount of Transfiguration. There are now, though, as you hit chapter 12, 11, that area, now there are less miracles and more conversational teaching by Jesus. There's a move also geographically from the north in Galilee to Jerusalem. Jesus starts to head south to Judea, the region, and Jerusalem, one particular city there. And it creates some anxiety on the parts of the disciples. And for the reader of Mark, it kind of creates this like, why are you going to Jerusalem sense? That doesn't make any sense because that's where the harshest opposition to Jesus is. Both politically, the Roman governor is there, and religiously, various Jewish authorities that we've seen, the Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, scribes, priests, all of them are in Jerusalem, are centered around Jerusalem. And Jesus' interaction with these folks has not gone particularly well. He's even been recorded three times, and may have said it more, that he will go to Jerusalem, he will suffer and die. And people hear that? Well, let's stay away from Jerusalem, right? Why not head north, Jesus? I hear that Antioch is really nice this time of year, a lot better. There's a beach there maybe, and we could just spend a little vacation, rest up. Uh, maybe go east, a little time in the wilderness is always good for somebody's soul. So let's avoid Jerusalem and go east instead because bad things are in Jerusalem. Or even let's just hop on a boat and head west into that dreaded Mediterranean Sea yeah, it didn't work out so well for Jonah, but Jesus has demonstrated his power over the sea, so let's get out of Dodge here and avoid Jerusalem. You don't want Jesus to go to Jerusalem because he's demonstrated this power, he's demonstrated this compassion, and now something bad seems like it's going to happen. 
As we hit chapter 10, Jesus has left Galilee in the north. He's come down to Judea, where the opposition immediately starts heating up. It's no surprise. And in chapter 11, he triumphantly enters Jerusalem and even enters the temple, but he makes no friends with the religious authorities when he goes ballistic after seeing the corruption in the temple's worship. Jesus has said and will say even more stark things about the temple and about religious corruption as Mark draws to a conclusion. He has said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. That is not how to make friends with the priests and the Pharisees. You can almost see them gritting their teeth and plotting how to get rid of this rogue rabbi. Chapter 12, verse 12, they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. And so in the rest of chapter 12, wave after wave of religious professionals come after Jesus, trying to trick him and get him in trouble. They ask him a question about taxation, hoping to get him in trouble maybe with the Roman authorities. They ask him a question about the law and divorce procedures and maybe get him in trouble with the religious authorities. Maybe that's the way we can get him. Wave after wave comes after Jesus, as we've seen. One scribe, one scribe, who some scholars have taken to calling the good scribe, comes up to him after these debates, which Jesus has thoroughly dominated, and seemingly sincerely, sincerely, this scribe asks Jesus, which commandment is the most important commandment? What a great question. We looked at that last week. It's a phenomenal question. I mean, you read your Old Testament, and this is commandment after commandment. Like, okay, I got Jesus here. What's the most important one? And as we approach our text for this morning, we need to remember Jesus' answer. It should be ringing in our ears as we continue on through the Gospel of Mark. Because Jesus answered that scribe and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind, And with all your strength, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's a good answer. I mean, the the scribe says Jesus is right. (laughs) Great. Love God, love others with every fiber of your being, with all. It's a good answer. I don't know about you, but that is really hard to implement. All? (laughs) All? All is a comprehensive word here. Love the Lord your God with all, your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. It's a tough one. So maybe the question that might be on everyone's mind back then and even now, whether you were with Jesus when, you re- when he said it, whether you're reading it in a first century church or whether you're sitting in a suburban community theater 2,000 years later, if, if Jesus says that that is the big one to obey, what does that even look like? What does it look like to love God with all? Jesus is going to show an answer. He's going to point out an answer to us. He's going to give us an an object lesson in what loving God with all looks like practically. He's going to take it from the abstract to the concrete and says that's what it looks like. It looks like that. But first, he wants to make sure people understand something about the identity of of God's anointed king, the Messiah. I think what Jesus does here is after that conversation with the scribe, he wants to say, listen, if you're going to love the Lord rightly, 
you better know who the Lord is properly. You don't get to construct your own identity of the Lord. You don't get to define who that is. Let's make sure you understand who the Lord is before you figure out how to love him with all of your being. He's been asked a few waves of trick questions about the Scriptures, and now he's going to show his knowledge of the Scriptures by turning the tables and asking a question himself. So if you have your Bibles open, go to Mark chapter 12. I know it took me a while to get there, but um, that's just what happens sometimes. Mark chapter 12. I'm going to take this passage. We're going to start it in verse 35. Eventually, we're going to finish the whole chapter, but we're going to take it three sections. Most of your Bibles are probably divided up into three different sections. I'm going to read each section at a time and kind of walk through it in three chunks here. But before I get that, let me, let me just pray. Because before we read God's Word and before we get into God's Word and ponder God's Word, it's good to ask God to open up our eyes as well. So let's do that briefly here. Father, we do thank you for your Word. We thank you for your word which reveals your son and the gospel, and we thank you for your spirit who is among us and that shows us your glory and the goodness of the gospel through your word. So open our eyes to the beauty of Jesus this morning. In his name we pray, amen. Mark 12, 35, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David. Probably just like that, there wasn't much of an answer. David himself, Jesus said, in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Now, this is not the easiest part of Mark right here. Some of you read that and you're just like, what? (laughs) What is that? Um, Earlier in our service, we responsively read Psalm 110, where Jesus is quoting from here. You may have read that or read parts of it and go, this is a little different than the standard Psalms that we read. I mean, we're talking about corpses and all kinds of things like that. We don't often read those psalms sometimes, but why, how does this one fit? And it's my fault. I pushed Darren into that because I wanted you to be a little familiar with Psalm 110 because Jesus is going to work on Psalm 110 and he's engaging those scribes, one of whom just came up to him and asked him that wonderful question, what's the most important commandment? But if you're not intimately familiar with the Hebrew scriptures and first century Jewish interpretation of the psalms, The line of logic that Jesus uses here can kind of come out of the blue. What is Jesus talking about here? You know, the Lord, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor stuff. That's fairly clear, easy to understand, maybe, at least in concept. But what's going on here? The Lord said to my Lord, what is that? Well, remember the great commandment should be ringing in our ears. And what's the first part? Love the Lord. Okay? That word there, Lord. Love the Lord your God. And again, do we really understand who the Lord is? And did the people in Jesus' day understand? Not fully. So Jesus gets into it. He wants to define who the Lord is by quoting Psalm 110. Let me try to walk through this a little bit with you. It's not a 
fun little story like the calming of the sea. It's a little bit of a logical work here, and we've got to kind of think with our brains, the other side of our brains maybe on this one a little bit. But uh, let me just try to work on this and see if we can put together what Jesus is saying. Remember the context, though. The scribes loved to debate the meaning of the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament. They loved to look at the Scriptures and say, when and how will this be fulfilled? Who is the Messiah? When will the Messiah come? How will we know He has come? And this Messiah, the King, the God's chosen King, the Anointed One, will come and rescue His people. It's filled throughout the pages of the Hebrew Scriptures. So they know that the Messiah is coming. And Psalm 110, which we read earlier, is a passage that highlights the eventual triumph of the Messiah and of Israel's God over her enemies in totality. Here's the last, or a couple of the last verses, verses 5 and 6. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. And if you're drawing, children, there's your verse right there, maybe. The Lord will defeat Israel's enemies quite soundly, is this promise from Psalm 110. And the triumph will come through a king from the line of David. If you want to explore this more, go to 2 Samuel 7. It's God's promise to David that his line will produce this Messiah, this Messiah king who will um, who will, will rescue his people. The triumph will come, the victory will come through the line of David, through a son of David. So a Messiah, or another word, a Christ, will come from the line of David and triumph over Israel's enemies. Jesus is from the line of David. He's not the only one, there's quite a few, but he does come from the line of David and therefore can be called a son of David. If you go to Luke's gospel, you don't have to do that right now. In chapter 3, Luke presents a carefully researched genealogy of Jesus' lineage, and it traces it all the way back to Adam through David. In the middle of that, as Luke is kind of bouncing back towards Adam, going from Jesus all the way back to Adam, to God, in the middle of that genealogy, you hear, the son of Meliah, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus was recognized as the son of David by a blind man just a few chapters ago, a guy named Bartimaeus. You remember him? He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, twice. And Jesus responded to that title. And no one seemed to have an issue with it. No one said, like, well, we need to crucify him right now. They knew Jesus, through his adoptive father Joseph, was part of that lineage of King David. So Jesus was eligible to be that Messiah, to be that king. Now, back to Psalm 110, written by King David, who recounts in the Holy Spirit this conversation between Yahweh, Israel's God, the Lord, and David's Lord, a son of David, the Messiah who is called the Lord. And that first line says, the Lord says to my Lord. I mean, that's, that's kind of, what in the world does that mean? 
God, the Lord, is saying to someone who is a son of David, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies at your feet. Now, normally, fathers did not share titles with their son or even share much honor with their son. But David calls this person from his lineage, he calls him the Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. But this Messiah is a son of David. So the question is, how can he be both the Lord and a human ruler from the line of David? That's the, the part where the scribes never answer. You see that. How is the Lord David's son? That's what Jesus is asking there. I hope you're tracking with this a little bit. We're almost done with this part, so hang with me here. We're almost wrapping this one up. But Jesus gives that answer, and there's no answer. Jesus gives his question, and there's no answer from the scribes. With all of their authority, with all of their knowledge of the Scriptures, with all their power, they kind of shuffle away, and the people just smile and chuckle, it seems like. They're happy. (laughs) That was fun to see him shut those guys up. It's kind of fun to see that Goliath skulk away. As we've read and studied Mark, the answer to Jesus' question should be coming to us, though. How can the Lord be a son of David? How can the son of David be the Lord? The chosen king, the Messiah, is the Lord himself in a twist the scribes were not expecting. As we just saw, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the son of David, but... That is not all that Jesus is. Jesus has taken the title Son of Man, and it's a a title with astounding glory and power attached to it. When you understand Daniel chapter 7 and the coming Son of Man who will come on the clouds in glorious, triumphant fashion, Jesus says, I'm the Son of Man. He calls himself the Son of Man. He's more than the Messiah. The Messiah, Jesus, is the coming and glorious Son of Man. He's also the Son of God, a title with implications of divinity. All the way back in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And at the end of Mark's gospel, when Jesus is being crucified, the centurion, the Roman soldier, stood facing the crucified Jesus and saw that in this way he breathed his last and said, truly, this man was the Son of God. So the Messiah, Jesus, is the coming and glorious Son of Man. He's also the Son of God. He's God himself in flesh. He's the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 3, John the Baptist, going before Jesus, says, Prepare the way of the Lord, a title reserved for God himself. And who comes after John the Baptist? Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 28, Jesus says, The Son of Man, referring to himself, is Lord even of the Sabbath. Who's the one who blessed his people with the Sabbath and regulated the Sabbath for his people? Yahweh, God, the God of the Israelites, the God, the one true God. And Jesus says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is the Lord. So do you see this? This Messiah, who the the Jewish people were expecting to be an earthly king, help them get out of their political situation with the Romans, 
He's more than that. He's better than that. He's greater than that. He's the Son of Man. He's the Son of God. He is the Lord, but He's also a suffering servant. A mysterious figure in Isaiah 52 and 53 that Isaiah says is coming, this, this servant who will suffer on behalf of his people. And Jesus in chapter 10, verse 45 says, Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so the Messiah King Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Lord himself will suffer, die, and rise again. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is also the son of man. Jesus is also the son of God. Jesus also is that suffering servant. He's not just one of those. He's all of these, and therefore, he's so much greater than any one of those. Jesus is the Lord. The religious leaders had reduced the Messiah to a conquering king, which he will be, but he's much greater than that. Larry Hurtado, one of my favorite New Testament scholars, says this, Since David called the Messiah my Lord, the Messiah must be far greater than David, not just like another David. That's how to sum up that first section there. The Messiah is far greater than a son of David, though he is that. The Messiah is divine. He's the son of man and the son of God. The Messiah, though, will also suffer and save because he's that suffering servant that we so desperately need. So let's bring this kind of complicated passage home a little bit. In Jesus' day, the Jewish authorities had a tendency to reduce the Messiah to this king who would rescue them from the Romans. We have similar tendencies. We want to reduce Jesus to what we want him to be in the moment. And sometimes that does still take on a political flavor. But it's not just politics. Sometimes we reduce Jesus down just to be my healer. That's all I care about right now. Just heal. And he is that. He's the great physician. But he's more than that. Sometimes we reduce Jesus down to a provider. Be my provider. Help me out with this situation. He is that. Praise God. But he's more than that. He's more than that. He's so much more than that. And you need so much more than a healer or a provider or a political revolutionary. Don't be a Christological reductionist. I I like that phrase. Um, Maybe you don't know what it means. Don't reduce Jesus down. Don't reduce Christ down to one simple thing. Mark won't let you. There are always dimensions and beautiful complexities to the nature of Christ that we must acknowledge, remember, and continually celebrate. He is the Messiah, but we, his people, need the Son of God to also be a suffering servant so that we can be ransomed and saved. And praise the Lord, Jesus is that. So there's that passage. Since God's chosen Messiah now is much more than a simple descendant of David and a political revolutionary, well, how do we love him? How do we love the Lord with all? Now, Jesus, throughout the Gospel of Mark, has been giving people instruction on how to follow God, what discipleship following the Messiah looks like. He's just said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, I'm sorry, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So there's 
principle number one on how to, on what following the Messiah looks like. But he's also said this back up in chapter 10, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In that same chapter, Jesus had said, many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And even earlier, he said, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. All these teachings that Jesus has, these these commands and instructions on what it means to follow the Lord are a little counter-cultural, aren't they? The last shall be first. You must be a slave of all. Be like a child. So still, what, what does that look like practically? What does Jesus even mean? There are lots of ways to answer that. In fact, if I just had you discuss amongst yourselves, what does that practically look like to obey those commands we just put up there a little bit ago? You might have some suggestions from your own life, and maybe you'd argue a little bit and find some different ways of doing that. Jesus is going to get us there, but he's going to set up, he's going to set up a battle. He's going to set up um, what I like to call a super fight. Um, in fact, I brought... Super fight. This is the super fight super chest. Anybody ever play this game before? Some of you have. Um, I don't remember how we got this game. It was probably me on a Christmas that bought this game from our kids, but it's been a fun one. Um, super fight is, is a great game. Uh, if, you, if you don't have enough chaos in your house and you want more chaos, buy this game and it will just like, it'll, it'll up the level of chaos in your home, which some of you may need. Um, we did not need this, but we still got the game. And the, the simple process of the game is you pick these series of cards and you construct this character and then your opponent picks a series of cards and he or she has this character as well and then you just argue about who would win in a fight Um, which we really didn't need to do as a family but it it, we found it quite fun except for my wife Um, and uh, she kind of fled as we played this and the rest of us just like had these crazy characters and so I went yesterday and I just put together a couple characters because this game is fun Um, if you want to play it afterwards just uh, talk to me so here's here's one example and you get kind of these attributes as well so um, who would win in a fight a really mean camel who summons cats to do his bidding and is armed with a shotgun that shoots shotguns okay So that's character number one. And on the other hand, we have character number two is a soccer mom armed with a super glue fire hose and riding a depressed centaur. All right? Now, my kids and myself could argue about who would win that fight for a long time, and we have. Uh, It got ugly sometimes. There, There may have been tears on my part. Because the rest of the the rest of the, the group would then then kind of vote who would actually win, and you get points if you made the most convincing argument. Um, it, it's a fun game. It's I mean it's crazy. It's fun. You should try it sometime. We love we love to argue about who's greater, whether it's the soccer mom or the uh, what was the other one? Uh, camel. Yeah, really mean camel. Really mean. Like you hear the story about the guy, the camel who bit the guy's head. Last week, a zookeeper? That was kind of creepy. Um, we love to argue about who is greater. We love it. 
I mean, your kids do this. You do this all the time. We argue about it in sports. We argue about it in academics. We argue about this in our jobs. We argue about it about our homes. We love to argue about which is greater. And Mark, in his gospel, has set things up to now contrast two separate parties. Two parties who are going to go head-to-head in Jesus' teaching. So in this corner, corner number one in the fight is the scribes, verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' homes and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Remember, one of the scribes had just interacted with Jesus about the greatest commandment. And Jesus earlier had called out the scribes. How can the scribes say, he said in verse 35, that the Christ is the son of David? The scribes, these religious professors, uh, professionals who argued over the law and wandered around the temple, loved to debate the scriptures in the way that Jesus had just done in verses 35 to 37. They walked around Jerusalem and other communities in these long white robes that identified them as powerful, as religious professionals. People were expected to give deference and honor to them when they saw them in the marketplaces. They were glorious. In the synagogue, they sat at the front near the scrolls. They had the best seats at the feast as well. Often, They would use this position of power and authority, though, to exploit the poor. They would devour widows' houses. Note the word widow, because a setup is coming for the person in the other corner. Their prayers were long and disingenuous and pretentious. And the result, Jesus says, is that they will receive the greater condemnation. While they sought glory, they wind up with condemnation. The prophet Ezekiel, years, hundreds of years before, had given a warning about religious leaders like this, shepherds who devour the sheep, take advantage of the sheep rather than guide and guard and protect the sheep. Ezekiel said this, therefore you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord as I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey And my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding of the sheep. Generally, it's not a good thing to hear the Lord God say, I am against you. And yet these powerful religious leaders in Ezekiel's day and in Jesus' day received the greater condemnation. They looked powerful, they looked important, they looked righteous, but in reality, they neither loved God nor loved their neighbor. Their power and their importance and their honor was something that somewhere inside of us we long for. 
We want that kind of authority and attention and notice. These guys appeared to be winners. And Jesus' disciples then and now crave that kind of power. You remember, the disciples have argued about who is the greatest. Right? They've, they've literally had that argument right after Jesus taught against that. Then they started arguing about who's the greatest. James and John longed for the place of honor next to Jesus. Can one of us sit at your right hand and one of you at your left? I mean, what a bold, stupid question, right? The rich young man a few chapters ago couldn't let go of his wealth or his position of honor to follow Jesus. So here's what Jesus is saying. If you value your power and your influence and your personal glory more than the Lord, you're heading for condemnation. So it's not just those guys, right? Those foolish scribes. Check your heart. The guys who look like the visible winners are quickly dismissed by Jesus, the judge. So in the other corner, well, who's going to face these guys? The widow. A widow. Now, remember, the scribes were financially devouring what? Widows' homes. So Jesus has already set up this contrast. So here's how it goes. Verse 41, Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Probably six or seven years ago, I was in the West African country of Togo teaching a class there. Um, I believe it was actually on Ezekiel, though I can't remember specifically. It was a long time ago. And I was in church on a Sunday between two weeks of teaching, an African church, Togolese church. And um, if you've ever been in an African church, it's a lot of singing before the preaching. And I was going to preach that morning, so I'm kind of waiting. The songs are in either the, the local tribal language or in French, so I'm just kind of sitting there trying to clap. Um, like many of you, I'm not very good at clapping, and so I was just trying to participate, worship in my heart, um, and, and it's just, you know, we sang just for an hour, and then there was an time of offering, and then another hour singing, and then the preaching or so, something like that. But the offering in African churches is, is a little different than we do it. We kind of do it like online, or we kind of sneak a box back there. The offering in African churches is the deacons will bring up a box, put it right in the middle, and then during the songs, people will come, and they won't you know, show how much they're giving, but they will put their offering in. Often they're dancing as they come forward and celebrating. God has given them something, and they are returning it. And they celebrate. This is part of the worship. It's really beautiful. Um, probably something we should never try here because I can't imagine most of you dancing down the aisles to give your offering. A few of you I can, but um, not all of us. And uh, it, it's not a command that we need to give this way, but that's how they did it in Togo. And so I'm sitting there and people are giving their offerings and humbly, you know, people, this is one of the poor countries in the world. But there's one guy there who just looks different. He's a guest that day. He's got like this turquoise silk suit on. I mean, it's it's shiny. 
And you can t he's just dressed differently. Most of the people are wearing traditional African clothing, these kind of patterned um, bright colors, and it's beautiful and wonderful. And he's got this brilliant turquoise silk suit. And so he gets up, and he's going to give his offering. And he takes out a wad of bills. I would have done this as an illustration, but I don't have a wad of bills. So he takes out a wad of bills, and you know, there's kind of a, a band up here singing, and different people are singing. There's a choir. And he just starts kind of flailing these bills around. And he walks up on the stage and he puts, you know, this is like 95 degree heat. It's just blazing humidity hot. He puts bills onto people's foreheads as they're singing, um, just celebrating. He's just kind of dancing around and just putting these bills and they're sticking on people's foreheads because everybody's drenched in sweat. And it's just kind of this weird moment. I don't think that's how we're supposed to give. Many rich people put in large sums. There's not a, a value given to that statement in, chat, in verse 41, but the contrast is noticeable. It's really not that amazing to give a million dollars to a charity when you're a multi-billionaire, right? That's great. I'm happy, and that makes me glad, but it's not much of a sacrifice, especially when you do it in order to get notoriety. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 3, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. But many rich people put in large sums. And then the poor widow comes and puts in two small copper coins. This was not very much even in that day. So let's do the math here for a second. A denarius in Jesus' day was worth a day's wages. And let's just, for the sake of argument, some of you make more than this, some of you make less. For the sake of argument, because I'm not very good at math, let's just say that $200 is a day's wages. All right, I keep seeing jobs that are like $25 an hour, and that might be $200. So let's just say $200 just for a good day's wages. Uh, give or take a lot. Whatever. 200 bucks. okay? Two small coins in that day were roughly equal to one sixty-fourth of a day's wages. So if you do the math, two small coins would have equaled, if I got this right, $3.13. Some of you are getting your calculators out and checking my math. Tell me if I'm wrong. The woman in that day earned about 50% of a male worker. So while a Day's wages for a male divided by 64 would be $3.13. For a woman, it's roughly equal to $1.56. This is not going to build a new youth center on the temple, is it? These two little pennies, or the two coins that make up one penny in her day. She's poor. This is apparently all she has. She's not sitting on a nest egg or a generous pension. She's a widow, so there's no social security net in that day. There's no safety net for her. She would have been in dire financial straits. But she put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, Jesus says. For they all contributed out of their abundance, out of their abundance but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything, or we might say, all she had to live on. Let me just step back from this and make a few notes. First of all, this is not a prescription on how to give to either charity or the church. Okay? This is not a command to empty out your bank accounts and max out your credit cards the next time you give to a charity or the church. You don't need to do that. 
There's no amens, but I hear it in your heart, okay? This is also, though, not a glorification of poverty. Um, Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9 are some of the most helpful verses on this where there's a prayer that says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Somewhere in there is the sweet spot, the, the, uh, the writer of Proverbs is saying. The Bible does, throughout, encourage stewardship of our possessions and generosity with our possessions. All of it motivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ who gave everything. And so we, in response, joyfully give. And this story here is an example of someone who understands how to love the Lord, her God, with all. This passage with the scribes and the widow is an embodiment of the themes of Jesus' teaching, Larry Hurtado says. This woman, with her small, meager gift, trusts in the Lord. She's grateful to the Lord. She's loving others because this, this, uh, this, this offering is likely meant to be distributed to the poor, some of which might be coming right back to her. There's an old saying that Jesus actually gave that says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, what does it look like to love the Lord your God with all? Well, not like those foolish scribes. They're headed for condemnation. Not like the showy rich folk who gave their large sums for notoriety. But you can almost feel Jesus' affection towards this poor woman. That sort of affection is found again in a couple chapters. In chapter 14, when a woman comes to Jesus at a dinner party, breaks open a, radically, a ridiculously priced burial spice perfume, and pours it over Jesus' head, and he says, observing and receiving her generosity, he says, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Let me try to put these passages together now. Jesus is son of David. He is the Messiah, the Christ, but he's also the Lord, the son of God, the son of man. And as he repeatedly predicted, he's also that suffering servant. The greatest commandment, the most important commandment is to love the Lord with all. And so the question that should be on our minds is, do we respond with gratitude, with worship, with a willing sacrifice, with a love for others, or do we respond with self-glorification? The obvious winner in this story did not come out ahead. The woman in Mark 14, she gave as a response to Jesus' death, his giving up his life, and the widow in Mark 12 gave as an offering of her whole life. She loved the Lord with all. Jesus gave his all for his people, for you. And we respond by realizing that everything is his. Paul says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. God created you, and everything you have comes from him. Your life is meant to be lived with a love for the Lord in everything. Do you realize that? Do you live it out? 
Do you enjoy what he's given you? Are you radically generous with what he has given you? He has been radically generous towards you. Now, before I conclude, let me just take a brief aside, an appendix of sorts, and just say one thing about this passage that I, it's not the main point of this passage, but it's important, and some of you may need to hear this. There's a woman here who is exalted above a group of scribes. She's unnamed. We never get her name. One day we may know it. One day I think we will know it. But the the mention of the woman here and then later in chapter 14, the woman who anoints Jesus, should give us some ammunition against the misconception that Christianity is anti-women. So many men in the book of Mark, apart from Jesus, are utter fools. (laughs) So many women in the book of Mark are devout and sacrificial, generous, humble, worshipful. Mark is filled with faithful, unnamed women. And the women who t- witness and test and who, the, the people who witness and testify to the resurrection first, not Peter, not James, not John, certainly not the scribes, it's women. The Bible is radically radically pro women in a culture then that devalued women. Jesus honors women throughout the book of Mark. The church can often be accused of being anti-woman. Just ask that person, have you ever read the book of Mark? Tell me who Jesus honors. Who does Jesus exalt aside from himself? It's women like this one here in Mark chapter 12 who gives her all, who's generous, who's faithful, who's trusting the Lord, who understands that she was bought with a price, and so she glorifies God. Some of us love to see Jesus as a compartmentalized addition to our life. He's our Sunday morning thing we do. Some of us see Jesus as a means to an end. When I get in trouble, he's got my back. Jesus is your Lord and your God. Give him your all. I've been the recipient of humble gifts. I've had African families have me in their hut for a simple meal. And it's beautiful. I've had Haitian immigrants buying me ice cream in the Dominican Republic recently. It's beautiful. I've been the recipient of grandiose gifts as well. I'm a missionary, so I've got to raise money, and I've seen large amounts of money come in. Both can glorify God. Both can also glorify self. Realize that Jesus is Lord. He is the glorious Son of God who suffered so you could have salvation. And respond in gratitude. Be generous with your time and money and attention. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you have given yourself so that we could be ransomed and redeemed. We are grateful for your sacrifice on the cross. We are grateful for your life of obedience. We are grateful for your resurrection, which is a precursor to our hope and joy with you in eternity. Lord, you have given us so much. May our eyes see that, see the glorious generosity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may we love the Lord our God with all because we understand who he is and what he's done in our stead. May we honor you with our all. Amen.